Welcome to Front Row from BBC Design and Engineering, where we talk to the people who make d and &E what it is. This week we have a very special edition with just one guest, Angela Stevenson, who's a senior technologist in radio engineering, and we're talking to her on a special day, the anniversary of 2LO, BBC's first London transmitter, well, well sort of. Being aware of our history is something that Matthew Postgate is very keen on. I'm really proud of the engineering history of the BBC and it's 95 years since we switched on to LO. Going to find out a bit more about that and these are all lessons that we can take through into the next century. And as you heard there, he's also looking at the future and we'll be talking to him about that in another programme. But now, back to 2LO. What was it and why did it matter? I sat down with Angela to ask her. A few years ago, I was on the advisory panel for the Science Museum's new Information Age Gallery, which you can go visit at the Science Museum in London, and it's simply splendid. And one of the artefacts from their collection that they've proudly displayed in that gallery is labelled 2LO. Uh, that's one of the reasons why this podcast series is called 2LO Rebooted, because I knew about 2London as the BBC's first transmitter. At least, I thought I knew about it, until I heard from Angela Stevenson, who clearly knows more about this than is possibly good for a radio engineer. Angela, tell me a bit about your interest in 2LO and the history of the BBC. Well, I'm very interested in the history of the BBC because um, I think engineering in the BBC has a fascinating history and it's a very defined subject that um, we're all really part of and why I became particularly interested in it was because I was really young when I decided I wanted to be a broadcast engineer and I even knew before I'd left secondary school that I wanted to be a radio engineer at the BBC. So what really fascinates me is kind of how did I come to such a strong conviction and who was there before me and who had made this even possible as a career really because I think when you've read a few histories about different areas outside of BBC engineering you realise how, how much hinges on very specific decisions in the past. So I just really wanted to know how we came into being, why we all don't just work for Marconi, that kind of a idea really. I want to hear about that, but why are radio engineers? Is it a family thing? Was it just some fascination with the wireless? I think it was a fascination with the wireless. I'm currently writing a small talk that I'm going to give to school teachers about being that knowledgeable about a technical career so young because I'm very um, passionate about STEM, being a STEM ambassador, and I think it's really important that we go out and explain what we do to children who haven't really thought about being in a technical career before, but I think there's an awful lot who really already know that they're passionate. So I've been trying to go back in time recently and talk to my parents a bit about why, how did I know so soon and, and what made them realise I was going to do this, and they said it was just always a fascination with how things worked. When we went to the theatre or the cinema, I wasn't interested in the magic of the show. I wanted to know how it had been done. And from that, I found radio and music at home and got interested in how hi-fis worked and how radio was working. So I think, yeah, it was just a fascination that really led towards broadcasting very early on. And then I remember the first time I saw a radio studio and realised someone must have built it and I was just over the moon. That, that sense that, yeah, this comes from somewhere. The, the people who did this could do it again. They could teach me how to do it. I could do it. Yeah, I just wanted immediately to find people who had done this. And uh, and now that's what I try and do when I do work in schools and talk about uh, how, how children, if they want a technical career, have to be really, really interested in the outcome of that technical work. You've got to be interested in, in doing the engineering, but you've also got to be really invested in the solution. And I think that's what so many people in D&E are about. 
And, and unlike many, I would say, you're looking to the past as well as the future. I know sort of a, a, lot, a lot of my colleagues are thinking about the next big thing, but you're also looking at how we got here and on what is a, quite an auspicious day, an auspicious week, because it's the 11th of May, 2017, 95 years ago, on the 11th of May, 1922, as I understand it, 2LO was switched on. Now, am I right about that? And if I'm wrong, how am I wrong? Okay, so on the 11th of May, 1922, 2LO, as in the first version of the transmitter, which was based in Marconi House and which was intending to do a broadcast to the public, was indeed used for the first time. That was for an outside broadcast of the boxing from Olympia. How you may be wrong is that 2LO as a call sign uh, was issued in December of 21, and the very first transmitter which lived in Marconi House was used only for technical demonstrations to potential clients within the building. So there was a very small transmitter there which was used for speech broadcasting. So yes, the first time the public would have known about 2LO would have been the 11th of May. And it wasn't the BBC then, of course. This was before the BBC. It was. It was actually just around the time that the Broadcasting Committee was coming together. So from May until November of 22, the BBC was really just being shaped. And that was by a committee who didn't even know it was going to be called the British Broadcasting Company, as it would later be by the end of the year. But that committee sat in parallel and they were very interested in what was happening at 2LO. But at the time, it was a Marconi call sign that was used for experimental uses of a transmitter only. Each event had to be uh, scheduled. They were very infrequent. And the, the Postmaster General was very strict about how many minutes you could broadcast at any one time. There was so much regulation. In the, I mean, this was a, a brand new technology. Why was it so heavily regulated then? Well, radio, as in uh, wireless telegraphy and wireless telephony, were already well known and used in the military. And the BBC owes quite a lot to the First World War, during which time almost all of the BBC's pioneers were trained and learnt their, their skills in wireless. So as an island we had real problems about how much we could broadcast and how those things would clash. So what was decided for broadcasting was that um, certain companies with a real interest could do small amounts. It was quite late in 1922 before they were even allowed to do speech and then even later when they were allowed to do anything with music. And they had to broadcast for only two or three minutes, usually more like 10 minutes at a time, before taking a listening gap. And in the listening gap, they had to check that nobody on Morse code was complaining about what they were doing. What actually happened in the listening gap was that Morse code was accidentally broadcast on 2LO. Really? So, so it didn't quite work out as planned? No, there was interference between them and people who were trying, trying to listen in. So uh, the, the audience at the time was very technical, early adopters, people who were just doing testing off their own interests. A lot of them had been military and had now set themselves up as wireless amateurs. Quite a lot of them had had a very small licensed transmitter, which eventually would have to be stamped out. But at the time, if you weren't going to interfere with anybody, you could yourself apply to the Postmaster General to have a transmitter. So it was just this a, a demand from that audience that they wanted speech and that they wanted music that really drove the Postmaster General to allow very small pockets of broadcasting but they were really valuable to Marconi and then eventually to the BBC because they learned so much. What sort of things were being learned there? Was it about transmission ranges? You mentioned interference. What, what else? Because obviously it was quite a complex piece of an engineering piece of technology at the time. It was and practically nothing was known if you look back now. So what really surprises me about 2LO and how much it developed in just a few months in 1922 is what was learnt about oscillation and modulation. And this is around how the frequency of the wave form is correct so that 
the listener doesn't have to keep retuning their radio and also around how the carrier signal from the studio is applied to the to the wave that people listen to at home so when doing a comparison between the design of the transmitter in May 22 through to the end of 23 it's incredible to learn about how much changed in the areas of um, of how transmitters work in oscillation and modulation and that was a big problem for Marconi because he was trying to replicate the design and his engineers were constantly changing it. So not only was the transmitter in, in Marconi House on the Strand changing, but all the transmitters that were on the production line at Chelmsford were having to be adjusted constantly. Yeah, I'm not a radio engineer. So what were the sorts of changes? Is this to do with valves, technology? What, what were they actually adding and changing here? What were, what were, the, what were the components? With regards to modulation, what they were really interested in was how to work with amplification from the studios and often the studio output was causing problems which caused the transmitter to break down, so they were doing a lot of work around that. Uh, for the oscillator, they were also looking at the use of valves and making it a really clean signal for people at home and they eventually added a fourth unit just to make the transmitter even bigger, which was an independent drive unit to work, to work with keeping the oscillation steady. And, and you brought with you some photographs. So one is 2LO as it was originally installed, and then there's the, the, the final version. It, it changed so much during that period. Yeah, so 2LO as a call signal existed from 1921 to 1929, but the period that we're really concentrating on for this transmitter is May 22 until uh, 1925 when it was retired. And that one device changed enormously. It was built by two Marconi engineers called Franklin and Round. We know that the first installation, which was used for that famous first broadcast, was built by Franklin, and we think Round was a consultant at that time. And then Captain Round, who was an early pioneer, pre-war with Marconi, spent all of the war making huge radio developments. He worked full-time on the 2LO transmitter for a year before turning his hand to perfecting the studio. He just knew everything. And what went into a studio at the time? Because you brought with you also a, a floor plan of what was the seventh floor of Marconi House on Aldrich and the, and the Strand at the time. So, so what went where? How did it all fit together? Yeah, well, the studio was quite basic and on it was on the seventh floor of the Strand and it was actually the cinema. And it's qu quite interesting to consider that the, the studio configuration we typically have today is of the, um, the studio and a control booth. And the very first setup was almost identical because they identified that it would be really handy to have the, the cinema and its projection room. And what they had was um, microphones, a very simple balancing unit and some amplification. But everything else in the studio was standard products, tubular bells, a piano, and just half a dozen other props. Wow, if only we had tubular bells in Studio 50E so we could play them at the start and end of every programme. Well, they were trying to replicate Big Ben, so I think we've done them proud since. So 2LO, as you say, the, the call sign started in 21, but the, the period from May onwards was when so we began to know it. What was being broadcast? Yes, so each um, event was planned and they were allowed to do experimental broadcasts and then later some things were allowed to be public broadcasts. Mostly they were doing talks and some singing, eventually some bigger music. The first wireless orchestra was entirely in Marconi's hands. He paid for eight musicians because they really wanted to test balancing. They had huge problems with miking up a piano, so that that caused some great developments in microphones. Um, but largely what they would do is arrange a concert 
set it up in conjunction with an event, maybe a charity or a garden party or a fete, and that would raise money for charity by allowing people to come to the garden party and listen on headphones to a receiver. And that kind of set up the first public broadcasts. Eventually, during 22, they were allowed to advertise them in the newspaper, but before that, people had to send in a little self-addressed postcard and they would be written back what night of the week and what time to listen in. And they had societies, the Wireless Society was very vocal in London and spent a lot of time lobbying the Postmaster General for what they really wanted, more broadcasts, and for those broadcasts to be scheduled conveniently away from each other. 2LO wasn't the only transmitter at the time, though, of course, was it? No, there was already broadcasting in Germany and Holland, and the concerts from Holland, which had the call sign of PCGG, were very popular, they started from uh, 1919, and there was even requirements for 2LO's concerts to be separated from theirs to make sure people had a chance to listen to both. In this country, the earlier broadcasts were also related to Marconi, so there'd been some occasional broadcasts from the Chelmsford factory, and there was other companies in the UK who were doing some um, experimental work with transmitters as part of their work with the Broadcasting Committee. And there were still a few amateurs who were licensed. If, they could, uh, if you could get within range of their transmitter, they might play you a few gramophone records. Fabulous. Well, well on this, the, the 95th anniversary of the call sign 2LO being used for this particular transmitter in this particular building. Got it right. Thank you so much for your time, Angela. Thank you for having me, Bill. And can I just say, if anyone else in d is interested in the history of the BBC, I'd really be keen to hear from people who might be interested in doing projects. Also, I'd like to say thank you to the Science Museum and Alison Hess, who works at the Science Museum, did a PhD on 2LO as an object, which is very fascinating reading. And a lot of the content we've talked about today is covered in more detail in Brian Hennessy's Emergence of Broadcasting and Asa Briggs Volume 1, which I'm sure all of d are familiar with. Thank you so much. And and if you'd like to know more about 2LO Rebooted Podcasts, please send a stamped address postcard to me, Bill Thompson, over in Broadcasting House. This is 2LO Rebooted, going off air.